I raised this question a few weeks ago, but I want to raise it again because it leads into our topic this morning, and that is, what is the good life? We've been talking about goodness and graciousness, and I think that to be good, we almost have to understand that our life is filled with goodness. And so, what is the good life? Remember a few weeks back, I said that this was a question that was asked by some of the great philosophers in the Greek culture. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle asked this question, what is the good life? And from the answer they gave, it gives to us some deep insight. They said an examined life should lead to a life of virtue, and a life of virtue is what we can equate with a good life. So virtue suggests that we're a part of the equation, right? If it's true that we examine our life, and if it is true that it leads to a life of virtue, somehow a good life involves us making choices. We're a part of the equation. However, for the modern Western world, the good life has little to do with virtue, and it really has more to do with acquisition. In other words, we think we have a good life if we have everything that we want. So I want a new motorcycle. I want to travel to Europe. I need new clothes. I want that promotion at work. And if those things come about, that's great. Hey, life is good, right? But have you noticed a lot of times these things don't pan out for us? It's not that any of these things are wrong. In fact, many of these things are wonderful, but it's not the definition of a good life. So you can have a good life without a motorcycle, without a European vacation, without new clothes, and without promotion. So when we think only of the good life in terms of materialisms rather than virtues, then we're going to be disappointed most of the time. Life has to do, yes, with achievements. It, it's built into us. But it's more than acquisition. It's more than position and property. And it's more than social status and being able to even enjoy financial independence. You know, we often call that the American dream. And the American dream is often what seeds the thoughts of the rest of the world. And what I mean by that is much of the watching world would often love to be able to achieve the American dream because do you realize over half the population of the world, half the population of the world lives on less than $5 a day? Over half the population of the world lives on less than $5 a day. So it's hard to achieve things when that's what you make. And yet, what's interesting is that the United States, when research has been done, is not the happiest nation on the earth, which is quite interesting, even though we have so much more. So what is it that gives to us a sense that we have a good life? What is it that frees us? from being afraid of guarding our good life so that someone else will not take it away from us. 
Well, I think it's possible to live a good life no matter where we are on the economic structure, even in the midst of economic challenges, and even in the midst of struggle, because it does not depend on our financial success. There's something else that's involved in a good life. What is it? What if the good life is living the life that we were meant to live? Now, here's what I mean by that, is what is involved when God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. I, I think that's more than just a commandment. I think it's an insight as to how we can have a good life and thus feel a sense of accomplishment and a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, that goes back to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you. Who is that? God. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? So what is it that you need to do to achieve good and feel that you have a good life? He says to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Well, we've already talked a little bit about nurturing empathy, nurturing grace in previous messages. So for the time we have remaining this morning, I want to talk about nurturing justice as a means to a good life. So what is justice? Boy, when you ask someone what is justice, many times what we will find is that the range of definition depends on their experience in life. Have you noticed that when someone has experienced a tragedy, they desire justice. And what they mean by that is they want retribution, right? So if something has been stolen from them or if they lost someone to an act of violence, many times people will say, we want justice. Now, is that the full definition of how the Bible is using it in Micah 6, 8? Well, there's a lot of uses of the word justice in our society. We want to bring criminals to justice, right? Let's fight for justice. Um, vote for me is a vote for justice, politicians will say. Your Honor, I ask for justice for my client. So when we're talking about the legal system, when we're talking about criminals, justice often is talking about punishment. That is, bringing some type of vengeance or retribution to a particular situation. In other words, justice is somehow balancing the scales. And of course, when we talk about justice, you've all seen the statue that I would show you a picture of if I wasn't having computer problems of a woman holding a scale and she has a blindfold on, right? It's that idea of balancing the scales. However, in the Bible, when you read the word righteousness, now that sounds like a religious word, doesn't it? But it's a justice word. And in the Bible, justice is all about doing what's right. Now that changes everything. That can apply in a court of law, but it can apply in our home and on the workplace, that type of thing. It's doing what's right. It's doing what's good to other people. So we can expand the definition to things like equality, impartiality, neutrality. And even though the word justice is hard to define, I think justice is more than just 
some type of retribution or punishment. You need to get that out of your head. You need to think of justice as doing what is right. Loving your neighbor as yourself could be defined as justice. So each time we run across this word justice in the scripture, we might want to think of it like this. Justice is acting right in our relationships with other people. Now, injustice is the abuse of other people or the abuse of power. What we find, though, is justice is not just some philosophical statement of belief, and it's more than a set of principles. It's even more than some type of set of legal laws. What we find is that through the course of the scripture, justice becomes a person. And what we find is in Christ, we find the perfect picture of what justice looks like. Because the way we see him treating other people is a description of doing right. So a central concern in the Bible, in fact, this idea of justice or righteousness, if you're using them kind of as synonyms, this concept appears over a thousand times in the Bible, a thousand times. So it shows importance. So justice, therefore, can be defined simply like this, right behavior that measures up what is revealed in Christ, right behavior as to what is revealed in Christ. So there is no law in our legal system that demands love right? But Christ does. There's no law in uh, our, our, our usual understanding of justice that requires empathy and compassion, but Christ does. There's no law that demands grace, but Christ do, does. So a holistic understanding of justice and righteousness is, I think, also embedded into our own country. It is the pursuit of life and liberty and well-being for all people. And it's treating people like that. So Christian justice is expressed through Christ as loving your neighbor as yourself. Now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this statement, which is interesting. He says, your righteousness needs to be superior to the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law. So you find that in Matthew 5, verse 20. In other words, righteousness is not primarily about religion, even though we might think in our mind that righteousness is a religious word. Jesus says, hey, these religious folks, they know the scriptures. They are individuals that uh, spend their time supposedly following God, and yet they do unjust things toward other people. And he says, you, my followers, your justice needs to surpass the justice of the Pharisees and the scribes. So how do you do that? How do you build a justice culture? And by justice culture, what I mean is doing the right thing at the right time for other people. Well, I think the first thing that we need to think of, and there's an outline in your handout there, we need to recognize injustice when we see it. How many of you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? There's an individual that's accosted on a road to Jericho, and uh, he is left for dead after uh, people have overwhelmed him and robbed him. 
And in this parable that Jesus tells, this is found in Luke chapter 10, what we find is that the religious people see this individual on the side of the road, and they go to the other side of the road, either because they don't have the time to stop, or they're afraid that they too might fall victim to some type of injustice or violence, and they pass by. But then a third individual walks by, and he is described as a Samaritan, which is interesting. A Samaritan is half Jewish and half Gentile, but the Samaritans were hated by full-blooded Jewish people, and there's a territory just north of Jerusalem that's called Samaria. There's a lot of history behind it that I won't get into today, but Jewish people often would uh, bypass this territory. They would go out of their way not to pass through Samaria. So this tells you a little bit about how individuals viewed Samaritans. They are individuals that uh, are looked down upon uh, within the Jewish circles, especially the religious circles. And all of a sudden, this Samaritan comes along. He sees this individual that has been hurt. He is the one that stops. He is the one that puts this individual on his horse. He takes him to a place of lodging. He pulls out his wallet. He says, I'll pay for this man until he gets better so that he can move on. So the Samaritan did what was right. Now, the illustration of the parable is the religious folks didn't know what was right. They didn't do what was right, but the Samaritan did. So what was it? that helped the Samaritan fall on the, the approval of Jesus list. He was able to see injustice when it happened. And I think that's the first key. As we're trying to nurture justice, not only within ourselves, but also as a community or as a nation, whatever it may be, do we have eyes to be able to see injustice when it's happening? Do we have an injustice radar, you might say, that it just, you know, it pings when we see it, and we don't look the other way, but we take recognition of it. Do we recognize it? So that involves sensitivity to other people, their trials, and even their temptations in life. Having this moral radar, if you will, to be able to see when people are being mistreated, in James chapter 2 that I read for you a little bit earlier, James, the brother of Jesus, said, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let me double back and say that's in chapter 1, verse 27. And then in, I read for you chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So I kind of misled you there. So. Pure religion, that is, pure religion is looking out for the people who cannot fend for themselves in chapter 1. In other words, it becomes a priority. Then we read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So if you have pure religion, it becomes pure priorities. It sees injustice when it's happening and steps in. And that is the beginning, I think, of developing a better radar of in when we see injustice, and it helps us to develop um, a, a better justice uh, sensitivity in us. The Bible says in Romans 2.11, 
that God shows no partiality. So in that passage of scripture that I read for you a moment ago, in a setting like this, if someone came in and they have ripped clothes and they smell because they have not had a shower in a while, uh, do people tend to migrate away from that individual or migrate toward that individual? Most of us will feel, I feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to ignore that individual. But somebody that walks in with a uh, new suit on, looks important, has every hair groomed, that type of thing. Oh, why don't you come on over here and have a seat? So James, the brother of Jesus, says, this is not pure religion, and thus it is not justice. You're not treating people equally. You're looking at people, you're making a judgment about them, even before you know them. And so he says here, God is the one that calls upon us to do what is right. Now that can be costly. And so the second thing that's important here is this. We need to recognize that when you fight for justice, whether it's on behalf of someone else or, boy, if it's in some type of system, there's a fallout. You're going to pay a price, okay? So if you fight for justice, then sometimes people will be unjust toward you. Have you ever noticed that's how it works? And so you have to be ready to recognize the fallout and continue to press on because a culture of justice will do the right thing no matter the consequences. In other words, if we have this justice radar about us and we say we're going to do what's right, then we have to be willing to understand that there will be people that will criticize us. There will be people that might um, be prejudiced toward us. Um, all those type of things happen, and you know that. You're in the everyday workaday world, and you see this type of thing happen. However. The great temptation is, at that point, will I continue to do what's right for other people? Will I continue to intervene on their behalf? Or is the price too costly for me, and I might not be able to achieve the good life because I'm paying the price of stepping in? Thirdly, another thing that I think we can do is tell stories of critical importance. So I just told you a story about the Good Samaritan, right? That's a story out of the ministry of Jesus. Stories are around us all the time. So I want to preface this video that I'm going to show you with this. Um, there was an individual uh, by the name of Martin Niemuller. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. If I said, have you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how many of you would go, yeah. Really, the individual that played a more prominent role than even uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was Martin Niemuller. Niemuller was a contemporary of Bonhoeffer in Hitler's Germany, and he was drawn into pastoring after a proud military career. He was a U-boat officer in World War I, and he became an ardent German nationalist and was bitter about the treatment of the Germans under the Versailles Treaty. And as a pastor, he supported the National Socialists, 
though he never officially joined the Nazi party. But he twice voted for Hitler, and when the crackdown began by Hitler, um, he did not defend the Jews initially, uh, but he only recognized Jewish Christians. Uh, he slowly began to recognize inside of himself his own anti-Semitism. Uh, but he defied Hitler's crossing of, of the line between church and, and state when he protested uh, the German Christian movement with its uh, blasphemous blending of church and state. So he was arrested by the Nazis in 1937 for opposing Hitler's imposition upon the church. And after being held for eight months for trial, he was given a seven-month sentence, and uh, then he should have been released. Hitler himself personally had him sentenced, though, to a concentration camp and later to Dachau, where he remained until 1945. So he was in prison for a better part of a decade for being critical to Hitler's movement of anti-Semitism. So after the war, he began talking about his experience. And that's the video that I want to show you. Um, this video of Martin Niemuller has this very famous line within it, and you'll recognize it, but I think it's so apropos to our subject. He was pursuing justice. He was intervening for justice but he paid a huge cost. Let's watch. Let me say that again. Niemuller wrote this. When the Nazis came for the communists, I did not speak out. I was not a communist. When they came for the trade unionist, I did not speak out. I was not a trade unionist. When they came for the Jews, I did not speak out. I was not a Jew. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak out. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So justice, I think, demands that all divisions be overcome by Christ's love. Divisions of economics, class, race, health, education, nationality, and religion. And in addition, the kingdom vision includes environmental stewardship and creation care as well. Justice means to be empowered through the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. And the best way to summarize it is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There is a church father by the name of Gregory lived in Nisa in between 335 and 395 AD, and he said, it is impossible for one to live without peers who considers things exactly as they are. It's impossible for one to live without peers who considers things exactly as they are. We all know the world is not as it should be. So we must act with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. We must pursue justice for us and for those who follow us. A life of doing justice is working with God to make a right in a world that's gone wrong. It's to be an arc bender, right? The arc of justice is long, but we are a part of that. So we do it in a variety of ways. Um, we can do it by personally intervening, or we can do it through storytelling. So this past week, uh, I sat down with my guitar, and I was playing with it a little bit, and I thought of 
John Lennon's uh, song, Imagine. And I started to play it, and then uh, there were these words that came to my mind. So I'm collaborating with John Lennon here, collaborating with a man that's been long gone for many years. Uh, but in your liturgy there, you'll notice that there's a blending of this song. Some of the verbiage is mine, and some of it is his. So I want to play it for you. Imagine more than heaven. Imagine peace on earth. Something to live and die for. To give mankind new birth. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. God makes all things new. Nothing to kill or die for. Your religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be more just. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of men. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be more just. I usually don't like to play something unless I know it better, but that was only two days ago, so <laughs> I had to look at stuff. Great to, it's great to have you here, and 
Notice there's a closing prayer, and let's uh, all stand, and I want to use this as our close for today. God, you have given all people a common origin. It is your will that they be gathered together as one family in yourself. Fill the hearts of humankind with the fire of your love and with the desire to ensure justice for all. By sharing the good things you have given us, may we secure an equality for all our brothers and sisters throughout the world. May there be an end to division, strife, and war. May there be a dawning of a truly human society built on love and peace. Grant us a vision of your world as your love would have it, a vision where the weak are protected, a world where the riches of creation are shared and enjoyed, a world where different races and cultures live in harmony and mutual respect, a world where peace is built with justice and justice is grounded in love. Give us the inspiration and courage to build it through Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Come on out Wednesday night if you'd like to be a part of the team that I'll plan for September 19th. Have a great day.